Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So I just want to apologize in advance because I sound very raspy, and that's because I'm just getting over a bout of bronchitis. It will be worth listening to a voice that sounds a little like sandpaper because my guest this week is a fascinating individual who has directed some of the biggest documentaries in the last two, three decades. His name is Errol Morris. He won an Academy Award for The Fog of War. He did the very famous film, The Thin Blue Line, The Act of Killing. We're going to get into a little bit of all of those, but we're really going to talk today about his new movie, American Dharma, which looks at Stephen Bannon and spends quite a lot of time with him uh, in relation to how he has driven this kind of white nationalist movement throughout the country, the rise of Trump, all of the things that we're seeing happening today in the world as a result of the last few years. Um, I watched the documentary uh, this week, and it was truly fascinating. It made me think that Steve Bannon is a complete psychopath. Uh, and so I'm very excited to hear if Errol thinks the same thing. And we're going to probably bounce around to a few other topics, including Elizabeth Holmes. So without further ado, Errol Morris. Hi there. How are you? Thanks for joining us. This is very exciting. Um, so I am just going to come right out with it and ask. So you did this documentary on Steve Bannon. You don't that's like what, the guy very much, huh? That's what they say. They say I did this. Um <laughs> Well, the thing that the thing that I think was so fascinating to me was the hypocrisy of him. You know, he you open the doc with this discussion where let's call it a film. A film, okay. It is a film. Uh, you open the film with the discussion of him talking about uh, this film that he loves. Um, what is the title of it? The twelfth. Uh, twelve o'clock. High. Twelve o'clock high. Twelve o'clock high. Sorry, and he um, he's talking about this general who he thinks is just so amazing because he's he's telling these these young kids to go into battle uh and, and and die for what they believe in it's gregory peck's i'm aging myself here obviously how so well because i haven't seen the film i would love to i've seen your film i haven't seen the film i wondered whether there's a problem because all of american dharma i don't think there's a problem but you know i'm as delusional as the next guy do you need to see 12 o'clock high? 12 o'clock high for me is an important film for what it tells us about the current age, what it tells us about Stephen K. Bannon, um, what it tells us uh, about America. Uh, this is a film that came out in 1949. Um, if memory serves me correctly, America had won a major war um, against the Axis powers, the Third Reich, Imperial Japan. Um, this is a story of the bombers uh, during World War II sent over Nazi Germany, uh, and the pilots and crew that flew those missions uh, often flew those missions to their death. The attrition mm. rate was enormous. Um, so the central scene in 12 O'Clock High is Gregory Peck exhorting his pilots, telling them, consider yourself already dead. You go up there and you bomb. There's no discussion of right or wrong, moral or immoral. It's a mission, and you will do your duty. And Bannon waxes purple about, I call them the three Ds, duty, dharma, destiny. Um, it's your duty, your dharma, your destiny, destiny to go up over Nazi Germany and drop these bombs. When I first saw it, I've seen, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of American movies. I'd never seen 12 O'Clock High. Gregory Peck's best performance, better in my view than To Kill a Mockingbird. An amazing performance. And... 
I asked myself, could this be a movie f- for Nazi Germany as well as for America? Hmm. Well, we know the backstory. We know the context. We know um, the outlines of World War Two. Bannon tells us he saw this movie his first week at Harvard Business School. Which to me was just a totally shocking juxtaposition that he went to Harvard Business School and saw the film as a as a way to grow a business. Was it just shocking to you? I find it really sick because in addition to well, let's maximize shareholder value, shall we? Through a movie about a war with Nazi Germany. Shall we also imagine that winning is everything? What you do, you do to win. Everything else is irrelevant. So someone said to me, I thought this was very peculiar, that this was my least ironic movie which is indeed hurtful because I live for irony. Without irony, I don't know what I would do with myself. (laughs) Um, I'd be oh so very, very alone (laughs) and sad. Irony keeps me going. So I asked him, is it ironic that Stephen K. Bannon would use 12 o'clock high? He uses this as a central... How can I best tell this story briefly? People ask me, well, why did you make this movie? Mm. What were you thinking? I was thinking a lot of different things. I was thinking that the election of Donald Trump uh, to the presidency of the United States was one of the worst things that's happened during my lifetime. Wow. I agree with you completely, (laughs) but there's been a lot of bad stuff that's taken place, but I completely agree. I'm just... Go on. Notwithstanding that there has been a lot of bad stuff that's taken place, this was pretty damn horrible. Um, A nightmare. Uh, I feel that America was plunged into this nightmare, which is ongoing. We have not yet emerged from it. And do you think that Stephen Bannon was the reason that nightmare was was able to become a reality? He was certainly part of it. Absolutely. But do you think that... Do I think he was the sole cause? Well, he seems no, to, He I seems don't. to think that without... I mean, the thing that comes across in the film, and always comes across with Bannon, well, first of all, is his hypocrisy, his utter hypocrisy with everything. Second of all is his ego, which is just... Couldn't even, I don't even know how you fit it in the room when you interviewed him. Boundless. Boundless. But he seems to think that without him, this would have never happened. And you kind of have to wonder if maybe he's a little correct, or I don't know. Well, take 12 o'clock high. So I based the movie around 12 o'clock high. You're in the Quonset hut, the Quonset hut where Gregory. Peck tells his pilots, consider yourself already dead. Bannon is pontificating. And then he's telling us that this movie essentially became how he conducted the 2016 campaign. Hmm. He's quite clear about it. So you have these scenes, which to me are some of the most appalling things I've ever shown in a movie or otherwise, uh, the Clinton accusers m- marching into a room with Bannon smiling like the cat who swallowed the canary, a kind of chief, uh, gleeful look on his face, the exhortation on the day of uh, Access Hollywood. Mm-hmm. The tape comes out. People think Bannon is... Uh, that Trump is done for, and Bannon, and he could be Gregory Peck. He's in the Quonset hut. He's exhorting, exhorting his troops. 
you're either on the plane, you're going to St. Louis to the mm-hmm. second debate, uh, you're either on the plane or off the campaign. Christie is out. Giuliani is in. Well, it's it's what's so fascinating is uh, we all lived through this moment, but seeing it in the way you showed in the film, kind of in this quick repetition and the behind the scenes of what's going on. Bannon bragging about how he how he decided to get around the Access Hollywood tape and bragging about you know all of the things he did during the campaign. The question I have for you is, you spent, what, 16 hours with him? Whatever. Whatever. Did you hate him more by the end? Did you think he was just... A, I mean, do you think he's an evil person? Like, do you think he's a sociopath? Like, what What was your belief after spending so much time with this man? I don't like medicalizing this stuff. Um, is he a this? Is he a that? Um um, Evil's not medical. Evil is not medical. I really don't believe in evil. I believe in evil acts. People do horribly bad things, evil things. But evil incarnate, not so much. But what did you think of Bannon? You have to have an opinion. I think Bannon is deeply self deceived about who he is and what he's doing. He sees himself as a champion of the people. He sees himself as a Gregory Peck type leader. Um, Champion of the middle class. It's a, a great trick to convince yourself when you've gone to Harvard Business School, when you work for Goldman Sachs, when you take money from right-wing billionaires, um, where you promote a tax cut, which is beneficial to the rich, not the middle class, and most certainly not the poor, it's a kind of uh, sleight of hand or sleight of mind, if you like, to convince yourself that you are really... And to convince others, I well, guess. That's, so that's the question. Is he convincing us and he knows it's bullshit? Or is he convincing himself in some weird, maniacal kind of justification for his actions? Have you ever been a salesman? Yeah, I, I worked... When I was in high school, I worked at the restaurants, the clothing stores, you name it. I call it the pie graph question. Okay, go on. Uh, you've just asked the pie graph question, in essence. And the pie graph question is, okay, show me the pie graph, what percentage is snake oil salesman, what percentage is true believer? It's a question, ultimately, I won't say it's impossible to answer, it's difficult to answer, because when you're selling something, it's always advantageous in making the sale to believe what you're selling is somehow worthy, good. Um, people have an almost infinite capacity to deceive themselves. That's a weakness of this species. It's nothing, by the way, that we should be at all proud of. No. We should be deeply ashamed of it. Our infinite capacity for credulity, to believe any kind of imaginable and unimaginable horseshit but that's who we are does bannon really believe it i think part of him has convinced himself yeah he doesn't like it when he's made fun of we were doing some adr recording and it's additional recording if yeah you need to replace Something that was um, recorded uh, earlier. He's reading a book, The Great Wall of China. While you're doing this recording? Yes, he's come to the recording studio with a book about The Great Wall of China. So I think, well, that's interesting. You know, they're all reading about walls. They're really, really fascinated by walls. 
um, great walls in history, um, uh, the efficacy of walls, uh, on and on and on and on and on. So I said to him, well, you know, the Great Wall of China worked. And he said, how's that? I said, no Mexicans in China. What did he do? He looked at me really annoyed. But, to the best of my knowledge, there are very, very few Mexicans in China. And whether the Great Wall was responsible for that outcome, I cannot say. So does he... Does he? It's so interesting because... I was I watched the film and I've we are now what four years into Trump mania if you will of this this obsession with this person and I'm curious I still I still can't answer the question myself why is it that we can't stop talking about these people because if we stopped talking about them they would be effectively ineffective and yet I disagree. You do? Okay. I do. Go. I remember when I was a kid, there's a popular series called Mrs. Pigglewiggle. And Mrs. Pigglewiggle always had an effective strategy for dealing with wayward children. Um, the strategy for the wayward child who refuses to clean his room, you do nothing. And eventually, the room becomes filled with so much debris, so much detritus, that he can't actually get out of the room and gets hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And as a result, ends up cleaning his room. And Mrs. Pigglewiggle, as she always does, triumphs in the end. <laughs> Lewis Carroll also has a line that I very much like. Uh, speak harshly to your little boy and beat him when he sneezes. He only does it to annoy because he knows it teases. I don't know what the appropriate strategy is, or even if there is an appropriate strategy for dealing with this nightmare. P part of America went into a kind of hibernation. Um, this idea that if you ignore it, which is an idea that you just so eloquently expressed, don't answer back quite yet, <laughs> that it will somehow be defeated. That the only reason that it exists is because we endlessly feel the need to criticize it, comment on it, etc., 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 and I m most disrespectfully disagree. Most disrespectfully disagree. It's not that. It's like I look at Trump, and it's very obvious. I remember, um, uh, and we were talking about this before we started recording, but I remember going to this Harvard event right after the election and meeting all of the people that had run all the campaigns. And Corey Lewandowski told me the story that – um, also not a, not a good guy. Uh, we'll put that out there. Um, he told me the story about how, um, how Trump had, had done something. He'd said something that had offended people. And Corey had gone to Trump and said, you, you're going to have to apologize. And Trump said, no, I'm going to do the opposite. Um, and he went down to, to the press gaggle and he, he leaned into it because he knew it was going to get more attention for him. And he essentially said that that was Trump's strategy. Once he realized that the more outlandish he was, the more that he would get covered. And it seems to me that, you know, we, I'm as guilty of it as anyone. Um, but we kind of, we give these people the hot air that they need. And Can't I be more guilty than you? I hate to be, <laughs> I hate to be competitive here, but don't go on. But we give these people um, the hot air that they need when they don't necessarily deserve it. And I'm not saying I'm not criticizing your film, Van. And I no, think no, that, no, 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 no. Go no, on. I'm not because I I found it fascinating to get inside this guy's head. And for me, the film 
you 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 see these blatant hypocrisies. You know, going back to the twelve o'clock high reference in the beginning, where the general Gregory Peck goes up and gives a speech about how you're going to die anyway, and then ten minutes later, Bannon's talking about during Vietnam, what his his favorite high school football coach loses his son and how that drove him so angry and it's like well wait a second these kids can just go and die because Gregory Peck says they have to but your high school football coach's son can't die so wait so how do you get to decide who just goes to war and does their dharma and their duty and who doesn't right and so for me that was incredibly eye-opening but do we want to see Steve Bannon on the nightly news every single night no so my point is is that I guess the question is is are we making it worse by giving these people so much attention? It's one of these counterfactuals, um, one of these what-if questions that's very difficult to answer. I suppose the correct answer, at least the honest answer, or the ingenuous answer for me is to say, I don't know. Mm. I really don't know. I don't think it will just go away if you ignore it. It's the ostrich solution. If you don't comment on it, insert head in hole in the ground, (laughs) see no evil, hear no evil, will the evil just miraculously vanish? No, it's a good point. I don't know if it's a good point or a bad point. Here's another point. It seems besides the point. (laughs) Because... There is no way that you cannot comment on this. If he institutes a travel ban within... Oh, no, no, no. I am, I, the, I, it's not that I'm saying not to comment. It's that it's, the question is, is the attention that he, that he crawls inside our little heads and he lives there. However you describe it, there are things that are happening in the world that one has to respond to. Yeah. Um, Charlottesville, you could pretend that that never happened. Is that the correct response? Um, Bannon, in my movie, blames the mainstream media for creating neo-Nazis. We live... In a Looney Tune era, um, what is the appropriate response? I suppose one appropriate response is to crawl under the bed and start sucking your thumb. I don't know what the appropriate response is. I know my own feelings, I can speak for myself, is I feel driven crazy by this stuff. This stuff drives me fucking crazy, okay? I could say nothing, but if I say nothing, then I feel kind of embarrassed about myself. How can you just walk around and say nothing when all of this stuff is going on? I've always been fascinated. I had this argument with someone about the First Amendment. So there's a famous First Amendment case that was before the Supreme Court, Abrams. And... Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote a famous dissent in Abrams where he talked about the quote-unquote marketplace of ideas. Defense of the First Amendment. You throw those ideas out into the marketplace, whatever that might be. Um, They jostle against each other. They... um, Uh, They're debated, argued about. The presumption, uh, Justice Holmes's presumption, was that good ideas, true ideas, correct ideas, would triumph in the marketplace. Well, excuse me. It's a lovely idea, but empirically, empirically speaking, is it true? And all of a sudden, 
we have this thing called, what is it called again? I believe it's called the Internet. <laughs> we have this thing called the Internet where ideas are promulgated, amplified, disseminated in ways that are really different from what has gone on before. where the whole marketplace of ideas is replaced by a kind of cacophony of expression. Um, people retreating into individual silos of belief, crazy polarization of everybody and everything, um, media manipulators like Stephen Bannon, one of the important things about American Dharma, for me, I don't even want to talk about the next guy, for me is this heightened awareness of social media and how it can be manipulated and how it can be used um, to promote what I consider pernicious ideas. Is there still a marketplace of ideas that makes any sense? I don't know. I really actually don't know. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You've done documentaries about war and you've done documentaries about, you've now done this documentary about ideas and social media and so on, and that that impact. I like to think, think that they're all about ideas, but let why quibble? But well, they are all about ideas, but there are there are distinct repercussions. Would you say that the 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 invention of you know nuclear bombs, or which you talk about in this film, was I mean, I, was less destructive than the invention of social media and the internet? I mean, it's like it's almost like this marketplace of ideas concept is showing that the words can be way more powerful and destructive. It suggests it's possible that they can be way more destructive, yes. I mean, there's destruction and destruction. Um, who's to say whether the bombs dropped on Japan during World War II were more or less destructive than the protocols of the elders of Zion? an anti-Semitic tract, which was beloved by the Nazis. Um, there's a sea of stuff out there. And it's important for us to be aware of what's going on. It's important for us to be aware of the dangers of nuclear weapons. It's important for us to be aware of the dangers inherent in the internet and how it can be used. It's all about awareness, uh, in some way coming to terms with modernity or where we're at in the world. Um, it goes back to what you were saying. If we ignore it, hmm. will it go away? Um, are we feeding it by uh, talking about it. This is a view that that has virulently come into play in recent years. Um, the desire, for example, to de-platform. I love this term. Let's de-platform Steve Bannon. If he's not allowed to say whatever it is he's saying, or if we encourage people not to listen to what he's saying, then everything will be fine. Okay, but I'm just... I'm, just, I'm waiting for the but. I'm just pushing back here because I, 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 I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about these issues that, are, are, that come up as a result of the actions of these people. What I'm saying is that these people have a and it is it is distinctly people like Steve Bannon who have the same kinds of thinking of as Steve Bannon Milo Yiannopoulos Donald Trump 
you know, st- uh, well, who knows what these people's thinking is like? We, we can we can surmise a little bit from the things that come out of their mouth. What I'm saying is, so, so like, let's look at Milo Yiannopoulos, right? Milo Yiannopoulos, who was in that whole crowd, was kicked off Twitter. Do you have you heard his name in the news as of in the last eight months, maybe once? Whereas he was a constant. Uh, source of stories and so on, and I and it's not that. And of course, the views that he was exp- uh, expressing, espousing, however you want to describe it, they're gone. Yes, all gone. We don't have a problem. No, anymore. they're not all gone, but they're not. But his his virulent viewpoints, uh, as part of that big gross soup, is is not part of the discussion in a mainstream capacity. So I'm not saying, you know. There was there has not there has been there have been few things in my lifetime that have have upset me as much as the the immigration policy with those families at the wall. Uh, like I've never wanted to to march on Washington in, in a way that I that that I did when that happened. And those are things we we should be talking about. My my point is is that is that the Steve Bannons and the Andrew Breitbart's and all those people like they became those people because. We looked at them in shock and we're like, oh, my God, did you hear what that guy just said? They became those people because Trump became the 45th president of the United States. Weren't they those people before he became that? They were. But all of a sudden, and I'll use this word because it's been used against me so often, it became incredibly toxic because it became public policy. All of a sudden, immigration was restricted in ways that, to me, was unconscionable. All of a sudden, people started to focus on the southern border of the United States as if uh, immigration from Mexico and points south were the central problem facing America. Which is not the case. For me? No, for any it's not. I'm just, it's a fact. It's not the case. It's not the case. The central problem facing America is America. Big discussion, but yes. What do you think, after spending all these years interviewing these kinds of folks that you have interviewed, is there a, and I know you don't want to uh, play psychologist here, but I'm curious, is there a personality type that ends up where these people end up in this level of power and uh, an impact, if you will? There is a personality type. I'd call it homo sapiens. <laughs> a very, very bad suspect species, I might add. Within within the, um, the homo sapien personality type, there are many different nuanced personalities. Maybe. You could, I would not, if someone said, hey, you're going to be president, I'd be like, nope, not going to do it. I, that's not, not the job for me. Like there is a specific personality type, like a Stephen Bannon or, or a McNamara or, or, or a Trump or, you know, or Donald Rumsfeld. Like, well, I always used to say about McNamara, and unlike Bannon, McNamara and Rumsfeld are responsible. They're in some kind of causal chain that involves the deaths of millions of people. Bannon, not so much. I always used to say about McNamara, I could never have gotten that job of killing millions of people because my grades just weren't good enough. (laughs) And Rumsfeld? Rumsfeld is another odd character. I wouldn't medicalize any of these people because you call them psychopaths, sociopaths, this, that, and the other thing. It explains nothing. It just defers the whole problem of explanation. I found Rumsfeld to be the most difficult person that I've ever interviewed. Because? There was a pie graph question there, a different kind of pie graph question, but most assuredly a pie graph question. The question was, is there anything there? Is he hiding something? Or is the real trick here 
the real trick of Ledger Domain that he's hiding nothing because there is nothing inside. Wow. Do you... It... Every single movie that I've made, I'm sorry to insist on calling them movies, but why not, <laughs> is about a mystery. Uh, the mystery of who is Robert McNamara, who is Donald Rumsfeld, who is Stephen K. Bannon. For all of those people who think that they know exactly who these people are and are satisfied by... Well, but do you know who they are afterwards or no? I think I have a better idea, but if you're asking me, do I know exactly who they are? No. Because I come away from this, these films uh, and... I'm more confused by who they are because I know now more about them. With Bannon, I mean, when I watch Rumsfeld and, and other films and The Art of Killing even, like I think that... Act of Killing. The act of Killing. Um, I think that with Bannon, I was like, oh, I get who this guy is. He's a huckster. He's a, he's a bad guy who um, is a hypocrite and, and barring a conversation with you was probably never asked or hasn't been asked in a long time, you know, uh, to face some of these questions he's asked. And even, even then, he still has a justification for everything, for everything. Well, there you go. Once you trot out the 3Ds, duty, dharma, destiny, you can explain anything. It's like a simple algorithm, uh, a kind of... Uh, ideological meat grinder <laughs> you put in the ingredients and you get out whatever it's all okay um, we have a discussion about tragedy um, tragedy for him isn't really tragedy tragedy is just the fulfillment of guess what duty destiny dharma dharma so I said to him at one point, Oedipus, let's take him, a familiar figure from Greek tragedy. For Bannon, it has a happy ending. It's not really tragic. Why happy? Because he has, don't force me to repeat myself, but he has fulfilled his duty, destiny, and dharma. And I say, that's just really great. I have this conversation with Oedipus. Sorry um, that this all happened to you. Um, I can see how unhappy you are. Uh, of course, I can see you. You can't see me because you plucked out your eyeballs. <laughs> you were in despair about having sex with mommy and killing daddy. Um, but not to worry. Feel a lot better about the situation because after all... I'll do it again for you. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You spent a lot more time with him than is in the film, obviously. Um, and were there parts that didn't make the cut that you sometimes still think about that you wish you'd put in or you couldn't because of time? Or There are always parts that well, you wish Tell us a couple. I don't know. I just did, I think. Yeah. I told you about the, the Great phone. Wall. The Great Wall, yeah. Um, did you get into, like, into... I know you did a little bit in the film. You got into Good and Evil, and you were talking about Satan and... and uh, um, Milton's Paradise Milton's Lost. Great, great quote. Uh, what's the quote again? It was... Um, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. It's a great quote. Um, it's Milton. It's Milton. Um did you get into, you know, I mean, he can't believe that that Hitler fulfilled his Dharma destiny. And, I mean, can, is, is everything justifiable in his mind? In th that kind of matrix, yes. Um, this bullshit about historical cycles... Um, the four turnings, 
this mixture of pop history, pop philosophy, all roll together into one ball of nonsense. <laughs> and the movies, people don't want to talk about the movie. The movies are essential to my movie, his discussion of the well, movies. So I wanted to get into that. So let me explain for the listeners. So the move, your film is split up with, with, with moments from other films that were impactful to him, right? Picked. Picked, picked by, by Steve Bannon for discussion. So the the one we talked about in the beginning, the bridge over the River Kwai. There's you know what were some others that he the Searchers, Paths of Glory, um, Twelve O'clock High. What was was that surprising to you as seeing some of these, or was it did it start to make more sense when you did? I never thought of movies as being a Rorschach test, hmm. some big extended celluloid or digital today ink blot, that we could look at the same film or the same scene in a film and come up with totally divergent interpretations. We would see, for all intents and purposes, a different film. I found that endlessly interesting. We're watching a scene from Orson Welles's Chimes at Midnight, which is his adaptation of, who's that writer again? William Shakespeare, <laughs> his Henry plays. At the end of Henry IV, um, Henry is crowned King of England. Falstaff, Sir John Falstaff, who has been responsible for training Hal, who becomes King Henry, King Henry, is rejected by the newly crowned king, who banishes him from the kingdom. Basically, King Henry telling Falstaff, who has devoted his life to his education, to go fuck himself. Or worse. I watched this scene. It's one of my favorite scenes with Orson Welles. Orson Welles is groveling before the king. Crying. Your interpretation, I might add. There's tears in the guy's eyes. Okay. <laughs> it suggests, as you have just pointed out, that he's crying. To me, he looks utterly miserable, bereft, lost, sad, yeah. tragic. To me, too. Uh-oh. To are we Steve going Bannon? To, are we going to agree with each other here? To this Steve Bannon? No, not at all. I'm just wrong. You're wrong. Mr. Morris, you're just utterly, hopelessly wrong. It's what? Let's truck out uh. the 3Ds again. <laughs> it's destiny. It's duty. It's dharma. He's fulfilled his dharma. He's delighted. He's happy. He's overjoyed. He's done what he set out to do. And of course, at this moment, Bannon realizes that in part we're talking about him. Him as... I mean, it's a leap, but why not? Him as uh, Sir John Falstaff and King Henry V as, what's his name again? He's the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump! Does Bannon feel happy when he has that realization? Or yes! But it's just another justification. You wonder, what is a justification and what isn't? Do you, at the end of these interviews, do you, like, go shower and bleach or something like that? Like, do you... Is there a part of you that questions why we're here on this planet? Or what, are, there, are there existential questions you're left with after these? Yes. And I would include among them, why are we here on this planet? Of course, we're doing our best to 
fix that. When you see like a Donald Rumsfeld. By destroying it. By destroying it, yes. When you see a Donald Rumsfeld and you ask that question of is there a here here, right? Um, does it does it have an impact on your belief of if there's a reason that we're here as, as a human species, as a species? Or do you, do you just think, well, this is a broken one? If there are a reason, if there is a reason why we're here, I assume it was an oversight on the part of somebody. <laughs> but do you, have you had any, like over the years interviewing all these people, these these incredibly powerful and destructive people have have you had any sort of realization or no? I expressed it to you a little bit earlier. It's become popular. I made a film with Stephen Hawking years and years ago, an adaptation of Brief History of Time. And I love Stephen Hawking. Um, it's always a pleasure when you find somebody who is as perverse as you are and who also is very, very, very smart. But Stephen Hawking's explanation when I was working with him for why we don't see intelligent life out there in the universe, simply that life reaches a certain point and destroys itself. Mm, that's my belief. There's a line also in Borges, just to show you my bona fides <laughs> as some pedantic, pretentious intellectual. There's a passage in Borges where he talks about this sect, the Hysteriones, believing that there's a finite number of sins that have to be committed before the rapture, before the second coming of the Savior. They abandon themselves to a wild debauch to hasten the onset of the millennium. Hmm. That's us. That's us. Us in climate change. As in everything. Yeah. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Uh, we only have a few minutes. I hope this is okay. Not too despairing. No, it's great. This is a great conversation. It's um, uh, it's fascinating to get your viewpoint on this. You've you've obviously given all of this a lot of thought, and and I, you know, you get to see the the art at the end of it, but you don't get to see the the what happens afterwards. And I think that's sometimes, you know, I write a book, I turn it in, it gets published, but there's two years later, there may be this kind of realization that. Oh, I should have done that differently. Or, wow, that's an interesting concept that I thought about later. You know, I think so. It's just what's interesting to me is, after you've done all these films, what is what is the what is the takeaway for you? You know, I sometimes think that that I get the greatest joy out of some kind of insanity. Um, somebody says something. They say it in such a way as they reveal something very deep about themselves and about the world. Um, I can even identify those lines. In The Thin Blue Line, the killer, the guy who turns out to be the real killer of the Dallas police officer, is talking about his childhood at the very end of the film or near the very end of the film. And he says, I came to realize I was only hurting myself. Why do I like this line? Well, it is so deeply self-deceived and so deeply untrue. Hmm. He was killing people. And somehow his whole vision of himself had been reduced to some kind of pop psychology. In Fog of War, it's McNamara saying rationality will not save us. Perhaps the most despairing line I've ever put on film. 
not just because I'm talking to a man who's based his life on rationality, on carefully thinking through problems, uh, coming to some rational conclusion or seemingly rational conclusion and acting accordingly, tells us that rationality isn't enough. It's a truly despairing line in general and coming from him inconceivably despairing. Mm. With Donald Rumsfeld, I show him, there are all of these photographs of him in the Oval Office with President Ford, uh, Henry Kissinger. This is the end of the Vietnam War. They're clamoring onto helicopters at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. We're cutting and running. I say to him, this was one of the worst debacles in American history. What'd you learn? And I've thought about this answer endlessly. What did he say? He said, some things work out, some things don't. That didn't. And I remember thinking to myself on this set with Donald Rumsfeld, what do I say exactly? And what is he telling me? It goes really to the central question of the mystery of personality, which to me is the deepest mystery of all, of who are we, what are we thinking, what are we doing, who, um, what the hell is going on with us? I ask myself, is he just withholding information? Is he stonewalling? Or is there really nothing there? Is it just some bad Hallmark Christmas card <laughs> floating around in his carapace? Um, is it all just self-promotion, vanity, um, self-satisfaction? There's a kind of horror about the world. I think that's what my movies are about. It's who am I? Who are we? Is it as horrible as I think it might be? Or let's entertain another possibility, shall we? Is it even worse? Well, that's a scary note to end on. Uh, should we try to end on something a little lighter? Do you know the writer Harry Cruz? Mm, sounds familiar, but not 100%. Um, one of my favorite, favorite American writers, um, Car, Feast of Snakes, um, one of the truly great Southern Gothic writers who died not so long ago. I once said that he wrote the greatest lines in Shakespeare. Um, one line that I particularly like, um, I said I wanted more than this not more of this. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to ask you, we're going to wrap up. Uh, we're going to do something. Uh, let's let's come back a little bit to... Uh, You're not telling me to be optimistic, are I'm, you? No, I'm not. No, well, I'm, I was going to ask you a little bit about Elizabeth Holmes. Why? Why? Do because this was a... I worked on this story, that's why, and everyone's you fascinated did? by it. Did you write the Vanity Fair I piece? I did write the Vanity Fair piece, yes. Of course you did. Of course I did. Can we just talk about this for a moment? Of course. I actually really want to talk about this. Okay. Well, you didn't want to talk about your films, or you want to talk no, about this? No, I don't want to talk about my films. Fuck my films. All right, let's do it. Let's talk. Um, of course you did. And of course I read it. You did? I, look, it, it's... Don't defend yourself. I'm not going to defend myself. I have nothing to defend myself for. I uh, no, I'm curious. I th this is an, another example of kind of what you've been talking about. It's someone who who we all question 
you know, the, the big question with her was, did she set out to do the right thing and then ended up doing the wrong thing? Did she, uh, did she just get 12 steps too far ahead of herself? Was the whole thing one big fucking scam? Yep. I think that's all correct. Oh. Well, that's the mystery. That is the mystery. But in the end, much of what was published, uh, I would include Carrie Rue. I would include Bilton. Um, you can have any viewpoint you want. Yeah, go. Oh, I'm entitled to my viewpoint? <laughs> is that... <coughs> I'm being given permission? <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I was hired... I've done over a thousand commercials. Mm. I've done commercials for everybody. Although I've turned down many commercials because I don't want to do them. I did all of these commercials. In fact, I started the truth campaign against cigarette smoking. I declined to do jewel advertising. Smart. Smart, smart or not bet. No, I mean, smart, look, smart in hindsight, given what's happened in the last few weeks. Probably smart in hindsight, but still, I didn't want to do it because I thought it was promoting something that I thought was pernicious. So I was offered Theranos advertising. Mm. And this is at a time when Elizabeth Holmes is everywhere on the front pages of business magazines, um, front page of the New York Times style section, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what's the question? Is the question is that before I take uh, a job, should I vet the company? I'm not. I'm not saying you shouldn't have done it. I just. I. What I'm interested. I've heard this from a number of people, so forgive me. Oh, go, 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 go. Keep going. Um, you were promoting something that was shown to be deeply pernicious. How dare you? I. I don't believe that anyone is guilty of promoting anything except for Elizabeth Holmes, because. That's not true, but I'll well, let you I think have that it. look in the way that she did it. I mean, the way that she she was able to well, she just lied. She just, she simply lied to people, yes. and she she and and I think that sure, it's our job as journalists to ask the questions and make sure they're correct. But she lied about the questions and the answers and the board members and the this and the that. And she was faking tests. I mean, I I don't think it was. I don't blame the reporters in this process as much as I blame her and question how... No, I don't blame the reporters in this, except... And this is just about essentially what interests me. It seemed to me that people were competing to vilify her, and I agree that it was not inappropriate. Did she lie? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Did she run a company that turned out to be a complete, if not a complete, almost total scam? Yes, she did. Should she be held accountable for it? Yes, she should. No argument. I felt a little bit about, say, Bilton versus Carriru, that there was a competition to see who could vilify her more. Here's my two cents worth of opinion. It really is only worth about two cents. Is that there was an unanswered question, and maybe it couldn't be answered. At that time, maybe the important journalistic chore was just simply to say, this was a scam, she lied, and she continued to lie. So where am I in all of this, if anywhere? There's a mystery about Elizabeth Holmes. There's a mystery to me about evildoers. What were they thinking? 
At what point did it go off the rails and why? That's what really interests me. I started to watch, just to show you how crazy I really am, I started to watch a whole set of Joan of Arc movies in a row. Starting with the two Joan of Arc movies that were done during the silent era, including Passion of Joan of Arc by Dreyer, a film that I don't particularly like. It's okay. Am I a Dreyer fan? Yes. I prefer Paz. Uh, prefer, oh, what's the name of the damn thing? My, my brain is going to go. Do I love Dreyer? Yes. Um, do I love Bresson? Even more. Do I love Bresson's film about Joan of Arc? Very much so. But to me, when I think about Joan of Arc, we all know that she thought God was speaking directly to her. Today, correct me if I'm wrong, we find that explanation less likely. Mm -hmm. um, so if God wasn't speaking directly to her, what the hell was going on? Was she a paranoid schizophrenic, if you want to medicalize it in that way? Um, was she self-deceived? Um, did she hear something or imagine something? And on and on and on and on. Uh, I'm afraid of needles. I once passed out uh, when my blood was being taken. Um, as a result of doing the commercials, I learned the term eichmophobia, which I love. Fear of sharp objects, fear of needles. I asked, because when I'm doing advertising, I always like to see what I do because I like to extend the job in some way. I wanted to do phlebotomy horror stories. So we got these people in to tell phlebotomy horror stories, people afraid of needles, people who had been abused by phlebotomists, and on and on and on and on. The stories, for me, Errol Morris, filmmaker, I love them. The guy who went to give blood gets hooked up to the bag. The phlebotomist uh, hears her cell phone ring, excuses herself, and never comes back. Well, this guy's blood is draining away. I was fascinated by it. I did this short interview with Elizabeth Holmes. I asked to do it. I put her on the Interatron and interviewed her. Um, I have something else to reveal. Uh, I'm a real sucker for weird girls. <laughs> yeah, I'm a real sucker for weird girls. Was she a weird girl? Uh-huh. Um, interviewing her, so very, very strange. I also had to formally do these commercials, which were just unspeakable. They were orchestrated by the CMO, um, Patrick O'Neill. I was asked... Um, repeatedly to appear in that film, The Inventor, mm. the Gibney film. And I repeatedly said, what's the word again? It's a two-letter word. No. I did not want to do it. Um, and then, much to my surprise, someone had given him all of this material that I had shot for Theranos. It became a large part of the film, which I have not seen, so I mm. don't know this for sure, but I know it anecdotally from what I've been told. Um, I, 
I'm left with all of these. I'm annoyed that that material was used. Um, I'm not sure what I can do about it, or even if I should do anything about it. I didn't do anything about it, so that, I suppose, expresses my feelings as well as anything. Um, let it go. But I'm sorry that I get fascinated by evil. What am I going to do? can't help myself. No, I, I completely understand. We will continue this conversation See, I'm again soon. I am now fully engaged. <laughs> Errol, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Do you think that there is still a mystery about Elizabeth Holmes? Not anymore. So you think that she was just evil from the get-go? I think it was all of the things that you said earlier. It was all of the above. That she went too far, it kept going, and then it became evil. Thanks to my guest today, Errol Morris. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Sakara, Figs, and Netgear. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you all next week.